Hello, and welcome to the Keepers of the Flame podcast. This is a show to shine a light into the darkness, to empower women, their support networks, and our communities to weather breast cancer, because together we weather the storm. But on this ocean, every wave brings you closer to home. Welcome back to Keepers of the Flame podcast. I'm Joyce Williams, your host, and this is episode number 45, Understanding Pathology with Pathologist Dr. Charles Todd Brooker. In this episode, we're going to work to better understand pathology. Pathologists help identify and better understand disease. They examine cells and tissue and fluids. Basically, if it was removed from the body, they get those samples, they check it out to get a better understanding of what exactly is going on. When a suspicious mass has been found, either via self-exam or a mammogram, an MRI or ultrasound, to discern for absolute certain what, quote, it is, you usually have a biopsy done where they can examine it at that cellular level. So the biopsy, they go in, you have your provider. I had a ultrasound guided biopsy done when I had mine. They used the ultrasound, they found out where the spot was, they numbed it, then they used their little device, punch, 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 took out the sample. Well, then what happens? How do you know what that sample is actually telling you? What secrets are hiding within? That's when pathology comes into play. Pathology is the examination of these body tissues. What exactly is going on in that tissue on that microscopic level? What do you see with those cells? Pathologists examine this tissue for diagnostic purposes. Is it cancer? And if so, what kind of cancer? What is the estrogen and progesterone status? What about HER2? What can you tell me about that cancer so that your ordering provider can better prepare you for an appropriate treatment? To break this down and help us better understand the science that's going on behind the scenes, we have with us today a very special guest. We have Dr. Charles Todd Brooker, who is an anatomic and clinical pathologist. Dr. Brooker graduated from the University of Georgia with a BS in chemistry in 1998. He later graduated from the Medical College of Georgia in 2002. He later did a surgery internship with the Naval Medical Center in 2002 to 2003. He did his residency in anatomic and clinical pathology, and he got that from the University of Tennessee Medical Center, Knoxville. He was there 2007 to 2011. He completed a D.W. King Fellowship in Neuropathology. He later got his fellowship in hematopathology from the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston in 2012. Dr. Brooker went on to work as the medical department head and special medical assistant to the Commodore in submarines. He was the attending physician in occupational medicine at the Naval Medical Center in Portsmouth in 2006 to 2007. Then he went on to work as a hematopathologist and surgical pathologist. He worked in Florida and Alabama, and then he went and worked as the chief pathology and laboratory medicine service line executive as the residency site director in Augusta, Georgia. He now works as the chair in the pathology and laboratory medicine at Memorial Health University Medical Center in Savannah, Georgia. Dr. Brooker's areas of specialty include leukemia and lymphoma, breast pathology, and neuropathology. And we are beyond blessed to welcome him to our show today. 
Remember, y'all, as always, we are not here to diagnose. We are simply educating you on a branch of science, of medicine, that plays an integral role on your health and your treatment. What is pathology? What do we need to know? And why is it so important? Dr. Brooker, thank you so much for joining. We are very blessed to have you with us today. Thank you. You have a lot to share. You just showed me the behind the scenes stuff that happens here in pathology. And you guys are the true heroes behind the scenes that maybe people don't necessarily know what happens. So I'm very excited to have you here to help shed some light on that. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm happy to, to educate people in the process. And, and it's much more sophisticated and in-depth than, than a lot of people would assume. Exactly. All right. Well, let's let's start the basics then. Pathology. For those that are not entirely sure what that even is, what's 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 a good way to describe that for patients? What's pathology? Well, if if you look at a dictionary, it says that it's the study of disease, and and that that is the big picture answer. But what what it is on the, at the street level, the practical level, is that we are the ones who who make diagnoses based on anything that's going to be removed from the human body. If a, if a lady, for instance, has a breast mass, they're going to want a diagnosis. They're going to take a sample of it using a needle. They're going to, they're going to give me that tissue. I'm going to handle it very judiciously, cautiously, carefully, and thoroughly, and I'm, I'm going to render a report that's describing it. And I would do the same for any piece of tissue coming from other organs right. and even things that are considered to be benign. Uh, if, if someone has a hernia sac, for instance, those also come to a pathologist first to verify that it's benign mm-hmm. tissue. Right. In any sample from a body, whether it be from a needle in a clinic or in an operating room, comes to a pathologist to make decisions. And further examination, what exactly is going on for certain? And you're able to give that information from running your series of tests and then giving your diagnosis from there. Ultimately, we examine everything under a microscope. Right. We will make decisions, we will, we will make diagnoses, and we will render a report that will be used by an oncologist, by a surgeon, for treating that patient. So another thing, if people Google pathologists, they're going to come across two terms. They're going to come across anatomic pathology and clinical pathology. And you and I were talking about that a little bit earlier, but for those that are not familiar, help us understand the difference. A clinical pathologist uh, is someone who's going to be managing and being responsible for the quality of the results coming out of a clinical laboratory. If you're having blood work done, for instance, and you need to know whether or not you have a, you've been exposed to hepatitis A, then that lab work would have to be done on an instrument that requires very fine tuning and a great deal of oversight. A clinical pathologist is responsible for validating and ensuring the accuracy of that type testing and anything along that vein. Mm-hmm. An anatomical pathologist is someone who's handling tissues. They're looking at the biopsies. They're looking at the resections and, any, any, again, anything that comes out of the human body. Most pathologists are double-boarded in both. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the most common, that we're both clinical and anatomic pathology boarded. And that, that's, that's the current state of training in, in this country is that we do both. And we will be managing both. Okay, so we got a good education here, and I want to share this with our listeners as well about the anatomic pathology, what happens like if somebody is is in surgery and the tissue gets removed, and we'll go through that in here in a second. But um, real briefly touching on clinical pathology, I read somewhere that molecular genetic pathology was under that umbrella. I'm, I'm curious, is that where genetic testing falls into play, or is that some other category? There's actually, it lives in both worlds. Okay. So for the most part, genetic testing that can be done on a liquid sample, on peripheral blood, for instance, would be handled through the clinical lab. And genetic testing on tissue samples will be handled through the anatomic lab. All right. 
that's good. That's good to know. And we were talking earlier too, if somebody has genetic testing done, that gets sent out to another facility and the information is relayed back to y'all. Is that how that works? That's very sophisticated uh, testing that, that is really typically done at a national level at a reference lab. It's not available in, in community settings really uh, for, for a lot of reasons, but one of one of which is the frequency that they're done is not uh, often enough to warrant the cost and investment of doing it at a local level when it could be done a large batch of, of samples from a region can be brought to a central lab. Right. Okay, so I want to shine a light on this a little bit more. Pathologists, you guys, you have your medical degree. You are, as you said, board-certified physicians in both the anatomic and clinical pathology. And I had read somewhere, too, that you're kind of like the hidden physicians because you're not necessarily relating directly to the patient, but what you do behind the scenes is absolutely critical for that patient. Help us understand that a little bit better. Thank you for asking that question. That's a common question for anyone who's investigating what a pathologist does. So um, historically, we were called the doctor's doctor. We used to be the one that all the doctors would go to for all the answers. We We were the key consultant for understanding a disease process going on in their patients, whether it be a cancer diagnosis or a clinical diagnosis like diabetes, for instance. We, we were the resources for all of those answers, and much of that is still true today. We've morphed uh, somewhat into being uh, largely oncologic-based and working with cancers. We do still have responsibilities in all the fields of medicine. And for instance, what I alluded to earlier with our oversight in the clinical lab, the, the accuracy of the results for a diabetic are, are dependent on my oversight of that instrumentation. But at the same time, on, on the same day, I'm going to be making breast cancer diagnoses. That's covering a lot of material, and that's um, and, and critical, too. All this information that you're able to gather by these processes that we'll, we'll talk about here in a minute, they're very powerful because of the implications that they have for what it's telling the ordering physician to move forward with, with whatever treatments that particular patient requires. And we wouldn't know that unless the behind-the-scenes work actually happened. We, we are a, a particularly black box specialty. Uh, even a lot of my colleagues who are seasoned physicians don't really understand how we do what we do. They receive results on, uh, in reports in the chart, right. but uh, it's, it's not an automated process that got that result for them. That's right. I like to say, and I think I said this earlier, it's not like a vending machine. You don't just put in the information and it spits it out. There is actual work and science that is going on behind the scenes that is really quite fascinating. It's amazing. And each of those steps have to be done correctly. And each of those steps require other people to be involved as, as a system. So I've got, I've got a, a large staff and each one of them has a role to play. And, and each and every one of them has to do their job correctly and efficiently to have an end product. Right, and I want to I want to go through that that here in just one second. But before we do, because because before the recording started, you kind of took me through the start to finish what happens with tissue, getting it from say surgery and wanting to know what's happening with those lymph nodes and that and that breast tissue. But before we get to surgery, before a woman knows that she needs a mastectomy or a lumpectomy or whatever, she might have a biopsy done. I had one done. They they numbed it. Thank God. They used their little extraction tool, punch, 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 and what came out they showed me are these little core samples, like little tiny chopped up spaghetti noodles. And obviously that alone doesn't tell us what's going on. You have to examine that a little bit more. So what what do you do with that? So a, a breast biopsy uh, is frequently done with a coring needle, and what you end up with is is a cylindrically 
portion of, of tissue, like a spaghetti noodle, uh, hopefully a little bit thicker than that. We, <laughs> we'd, like, we'd like to have enough tissue to be able to make the right decisions. And th- those, those are put in formalin so that they can be fixed, and there's a prescribed amount of time so that we can know that the results that we are, we're producing are going to be accurate. Once those are fixed, they, they go through a process where the tissue is what we call tissue processing. And that, that puts it in, into a condition that it is permanent. It can last as long as we need it to last so that we can, we can do things now and later. And then we also have to be able to make slides. So it's preserved in just such a way that the material is, can be sectioned on an instrument and to give us glass slides. Ultimately, what I end up with is glass slide on my microscope. And I look at it with my eyes and no, no special scientific equipment, spy balls, and make decisions about what I'm seeing. The size of the cells, the features of the cells, the distance from one cell to another, other, other features around it, what the, what the host tissues are doing in response to that. All of those will play in in a constellation for me to be able to make a diagnosis accurately. It really is very artistic at that point. So pathology, what's one of the coolest things about it is it's a mixture of art and science. We, yeah. There was a lot of old school and new school. We you do use a lot of technology. There is a great deal of, of modern uh, features to what we do, but it's still um, dependent on someone looking at, with their eyeballs through a microscope. And figuring out what they're actually looking at. So I think you you pretty much answered this, but I want to make sure I spell this out in there. You can actually see it, right? So so let me back up. I interned at the um, biochemical genetics lab back at, at NIH. Anyway, the work that we were doing was on the tiny itty bitty microscopic level, and we couldn't always see what we were working on. And we knew what was happening in our test tubes based off of a series of tests that we would run. My point is, is that I couldn't actually see those tiny little things that we were examining, but we knew what was happening based off of the tests that we run. Here, when you're doing this anatomic pathology, you can actually see those cells. That's right. I think that's huge. The key factor there is distinguishing it from normal. Mm -hmm. That's why I need a microscope. That's why you need a pathologist. Because the difference between a breast cancer and normal breast tissue can be remarkably subtle. Mm -hmm. And if you can't, you can't test random portions of breast tissue, hoping that you'll you'll find a molecular aberration and then make a diagnosis. You have to be able to distinguish normal from abnormal first. And only when you, you are taking that selected portion of tissue that you know is cancer, then you would test that. That's when you get the um, explanation of what kind of flavor of breast cancer that is. Like if it's estrogen, progesterone, or HER2, all that stuff comes after you first established whether or not they're abnormal. Correct. So you mentioned microscope. What kind of microscope do you need in order to use this? We use a, a, a traditional light microscope, but they're particularly high quality with, with lenses that can magnify it up to a thousandfold. That's awesome. Okay, so you can see the cells, but then when you're examining that estrogen and progesterone status, you have to run a, a different test on that. Tell us a, bit, a little bit about that. So once I've looked at a slide that uh, that's stained with what we call H&E, hematoxylin and eosin, and I, I determined that the, these two millimeters of this 30 or 40 millimeters of tissue that I was given, these two millimeters are where the tumor is. I can just take that portion 
I, I don't dissect it out, but it would just be that, that one slide and not the, the other extra slides that we had done at the same time. I'll take that one slide and take an extra cut of it that's unstained and put it on an instrument that applies an antibody, an estrogen receptor specific antibody that's after a protein, a portion of a protein, we call it an epitope, one little particular part of that estrogen protein or progesterone protein that is specific to it. And then we do a series of other chemicals added to it that will change colors. And what I end up with is a pattern of color on the slide in those cells that tells me that it's there or not. The antibody is only going to bind if the progesterone or estrogen is present. Okay. And the reason why we want to know that is because if they are estrogen progesterone positive, then that means that 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 cancer is essentially fed by those hormones and that it, it basically is going to dictate your treatment plan. That's what the provider is going to go, okay, did the pathology come back? It's estrogen progesterone positive or negative? Because if it's positive, they're going to treat you one way. If it's negative, they're going to treat you another way. Including chemotherapies. Yeah. So you, the treatment plan is tailored based on those results. And so I have to report whether or not it's present and how strong it is, what percentage of cells are involved and that goes into to the prognostication. That's that's important too. So it's not just yes, your ERPR positive or negative. They actually know how positive and how negative it is based off of that examination that you do. And and how risky the the cancer is going to be, and the the long term prognosis, and and what what are the best therapies will be based on that, and and other things. For instance, like lymph node status. Tell us briefly how you determine the HER2 status. HER2 new can initially be done the same way uh, that, that, that we do the ER and the PR. And if it's clearly negative or clearly positive, then we report it as such. If it's in that gray zone, then we have to go to a higher level. That higher level is what's called fluorescent in situ hybridization. We'll actually take one of the unstained tissue sections that has received no, no further treatment. We'll send those to a reference lab. And they, they will put it through a process that actually applies antibodies that have fluorescent tags on them. And they look through a special fluorescent microscope and can do counting. Whether or not it's HER2 new, positive or negative by that fish testing is based on the quantity of how many targets that they see, yeah. which is the HER2 new gene being amplified. Okay. And then another way cancer is defined is based off of the grade and the grade is, I always say that it's it's referring to how wonky-eyed the nucleus looks. The more crazy-eyed like that, that it is, the higher the grade and the more aggressive. And the less crazy-eyed the nucleus looks, the lower the number and the less aggressive. Are you able to see the crazy-eyed nucleus on the microscope? or how, how do you... I like that. That's, <laughs> that's actually pretty accurate, and we, we use similar terms. So when, when, we, when we're looking at them under the microscope, we, we, get, we get as close to them as we can uh, and still have some clarity in what we're seeing, and we see those changes. So we see the nucleus is the key, uh, so how big the nucleus is, how irregular the contour or the envelope of the nucleus is, and then whether or not they have what's called nucleoli, how big the nucleoli are, how frequent they are. There, there's a lot of different factors that go into that calculation, and, and it's a mental calculation. There, there, aren't, there aren't computers that I can put this information through. I'm making a judgment based on my training and my experience, and I'm going to grade that nuclei on, on all the factors on those, I just mentioned. On those several factors. Okay, so, so so trying to make a comparison here. It's like grading It's like grading a test. Do you get the A, B, or C level on the test? It's not just one thing that determines it. There's lots of different questions on that test that you're having to look at that right. ultimately determine that grade. So there are a lot of different questions, and it's how many, how many they fail. 
if they they fail they fail if the nuclear membrane is too irregular mm-hmm. as opposed to smooth they fail if the nucleus is too big as as opposed to being normal sized and i've got other cells in the background for me to compare it to that is that is so fascinating to me so a lower grade nuclei is one that's closer to normal that is still abnormal it's still atypical but it's it's only slightly enlarged from the mm-hmm. background breast and maybe only occasionally a little bit of an irregular nuclear membrane for mm-hmm. instance something that's high grade or grade 3 would be something that's bizarre in comparison oh mine were crazy eyed <laughs> i had grade 3 they were they were marching to their own drum <laughs> nuclear grade is one thing there are other things that go into the nottingham score so right. the, the the amount of glandular differentiation so a normal breast has got a proper glandular formation and the percentage of the cancer that is still retaining that the higher that percentage the lower the lower tubular score it will receive if it's completely lacking any kind of glandular formation then it'll receive a higher score the third part is mitotic rate so a cell that's reproducing will have will go through mitosis and a mitotic figure is a cell that's in the middle of that process so the more frequent mitotic figures that are present that means the cell is the the tumor is growing faster. It's but, proliferating faster, okay. and so we'll give it a higher mitotic index score. And those three things combined will give you the Nottingham score. And again, just to reiterate for those at home, that that Nottingham score that you're talking about, that's basically the grade, the grade one. grade one, two, and three. One, two, three. Let's talk about surgery because, like I said, you just walked me through the most amazing step-by-step procedure of like what happens. So for those that weren't on that little journey there with us, help us from start to finish. A patient is in surgery and the surgeon is going to either do a sentinel node biopsy or... Axillary dissection. Yes. And that is dependent on how those lymph nodes are looking. But you gave us the behind the scenes tour and showed us it's not just you know, hey, let me look at this uh, lymph node here, what you think? There's actually a series of steps. Tell us about that. So the surgeon needs to make a decision in the middle of surgery. If, if he's going to excise the central lymph node to start with, and depending on the status of that lymph node, he will either go on to do a completion lymph node axillary dissection, or he'll stop with the lymph nodes and proceed to the mastectomy. That sentinel lymph node is going to be given to a pathologist. They're going to examine it, and they have they have a very a very strict way of doing so, mm-hmm. so that we make sure that we are giving as accurate and thorough results as possible. If we if we follow that protocol precisely, we will end up looking under a microscope at slides of fresh tissue while the patient is still in the operating room. And depending on what we see there, we we're going to call that node positive or negative. If it's positive, then the surgeon will proceed with the dissection. If it's negative, he'll move on with the mastectomy. And I want to I want to clarify things here. When you say moving on with the dissection, that would be you're, we're talking about the node dissection, which is when they would take all of the lymph nodes away to examine them, versus only taking the sentinel node. So if the sentinel lymph node is positive, then the chance of the rest of the lymph nodes in the axilla being positive is high. So those need to be removed. So uh, he will he will go about removing as many lymph nodes as he can identify in the rest of the axilla if the sentinel lymph node is positive. And I also want to add here too that when you go through those those series of steps that you were talking about, one of those steps involves taking that fresh tissue and and slicing it so that you're not. And I and I want to add that because in my head I had it as something just like squishing on a lymph node, and they're not just like poking at it to go, what do we have here? You're actually cutting it up and putting it on those slides to examine it. 
that's that's exactly right so this has to be this has to be done in a very precise way so we we take the lymph node we examine it um to start with we'll measure it we'll remove any um, fatty tissue from around it so that we can start with just the lymph node and then we will section it in very thin parallel sections at two millimeter intervals we'll take each one of those sections apart and then rotate it and then lay it flat into an instrument to where we can, we're looking at it at a right angle and we're, and that way we can make sure that that anything that's two two millimeters or larger can be easily identified we put that into into an instrument that freezes it and we put a little bit of a embedding media around it so that we can turn it into sections and uh, when when we put it on um, what we call cryotome then we are actually able to cut three or four micromillimeter thick sections of tissue and that are fresh and frozen mm-hmm. and put it onto a slide stain it in the same way that we would a permanent slide look at it under a microscope and that allows us to see the entire lymph node uh, starting at two millimeter intervals if there's something a little bit atypical in there we can take an additional section to try to verify that but the ultimately the goal is to have a, a complete and thorough exam of that sentinel lymph node to rule out what is called a macrometastasis two millimeters or larger macrometastasis okay and all of this examination happens in you said about 20 minutes yes 20 minutes which is critical because you were telling me before there's there's this fine line of you don't want the patient to be under anesthesia longer than need be so that's why you have limitations to how small you can slice it and dice it to look that's why it's about two millimeters the sweet spot that, that's exactly right so this there's a very delicate balance there we, we've got we've got to uh, take into consideration the patient being under anesthesia the surgery is still ongoing i could do one micromillimeter sections of an entire lymph node and turn turn that into 10,000 15,000 slides if i wanted to truly be that thorough but then that would take out eight hours to complete so I, I we have to strike that balance of what is going to be the most accurate information we can give and and protect the patient in the most timely manner for what they're going through in that surgery room over there too yeah the, sur- the surgeon needs a decision uh, from from the pathologist right. so that he can make a decision of how how to proceed with that patient and and he doesn't he doesn't have time and the patient doesn't have time for the sake of being under anesthesia to, to wait so I have to I have to do it as efficiently as a possible in a way that I'm going to try to give or the most accurate answer possible in the time given. And those are macro metastasis. Okay, so that's the fresh tissue. So then the surgery is done. They remove, they proceed with either the lumpectomy or mastectomy. And then a similar thing is done, but this time not fresh slides. You're making permanent slides from the rest of the whatever is dissected that looks like they're needing to examine it. So all the tissue from, from the frozen section and then any tissue that's collected after that goes into a fixation process. And that, that allows us to make really good permanent slides that, to follow the next day, typically. And those slides are what we use to generate the pathology report. I also want to add one more thing about surgery. I have the BRCA2 mutation, which means that I'm more susceptible to getting breast cancer within my lifetime because of that uh, mutation in the tumor suppressor gene of mine. My, when all the dust was settled, my risk was like a 84% chance, but they examine more than just the genetic mutation. They take into account your family history and your breast density. And we did another episode on the, the whole tire Cusack model, but I had a friend of mine who she found out that she had, she had like a 92% lifetime risk of getting breast cancer. She didn't have cancer though, and was having what they call the prophylactic mastectomy. She wanted to go and get out ahead of it. So that's what she opted to do. 
And she wanted to donate her BRCA2 breast tissue to research. And I didn't even know that was a thing. What, what would you like to say or add about research in, in that regard? I, I think that that's a, that's a worthy act. That it's a noble, it would be a noble thing to do. And I think there's definitely a reason to do that. Lots of reasons to do that. That's something that someone needs to plan ahead of time. Right. That's not something that is handled at the local level. Those are, those are going to be research institutions at the national level. They would have to be contacted ahead of time, the arrangements made, documents completed, right. and so that it can be done correctly. Right. Uh, it's not something that it can be done uh, at the time of surgery. Right. And so, I mean, I am no expert on this, but I... I I would venture to guess that if somebody is opting for a prophylactic mastectomy, that affords them time to do that research to figure that out. But I just wanted to make sure that I mentioned it here so that if anybody is in that situation, they know that it's an option and to at least ask those questions and see what they can find out. I would encourage people to do that. I think that's that's truly something that, that would be helpful long-term in the ongoing research in breast cancer. There, there's, still, there's still a very large... Uh, area of research, still a lot left to be done. We need those tissues. It would be contributory. I, I've been involved in breast cancer research, and and it's it's quite challenging. And there's there's a lot that goes into being able to to produce uh, results that are they're going to be generalizable and effective for large populations. And so, any contribution that on even on the smallest level is worthy. Yeah, I I agree. I also want to talk about added tests that need to be done. So, okay, I had surgery, and after surgery, I was recommended for chemo. To determine whether or not chemo was going to be effective on my particular tumor or not, they recommended doing um, an oncotype test. And for those that don't know what that is, they're basically, it's deemed genetic testing, but they're running it on tissue, important here, that's already been removed. Like, that was a big thing for me. You're not cutting on me anymore. So they were able to get tissue that had already been removed during surgery. Now, I know that that's genetic testing, so it probably goes out from here to be tested, but how do they get that tissue? Once all those tissues are put into paraffin, they can be kept. That's called formula-fixed paraffin-embedded tissue blocks. Those are kept for 10 years. 10 years. And they can be they can be used um, after the fact. So once we've made slides, we've made diagnoses, we keep those, and they're preserved and they can be used for genetic testing, and testing that isn't yet even available, that tissue will, will stay in a, in a safe, uh, preserved, uh, stored status for, for years to come, and that testing, like, like Oncotype, can be done on those blocks. And that's important. That is incredibly important because then that can help people know whether or not they want to move forward or not move forward with that particular treatment. And it gives the, the provider that much more information to help educate their patients. That, that's exactly right. It's, it's very difficult to know beforehand exactly what testing is going to be, need to be done. It's typically going to be after, after all the data, all the initial data, the standard data that we need up front uh, comes in. And then we can make decisions about what, what's next. And that's why we have those tissue blocks. The same tissue blocks that the original slides were made off of, that we, were, that we had stained with an H&E and, and had made decisions from, it's the very same tissue that's been saved. In the uh, special library. That's right. What would you like other physicians or the aspiring physician to know about pathology and pathologists? I think it's it's a very interesting specialty. I find every day to be challenging, interesting. I have to, uh, despite many years of experience, I learn something new every day, and it's constantly changing and evolving. Pathology is, is not a static specialty. Most medical specialties are not static, but I would say pathology is, is particularly not static. Yeah. We've... Uh, 
we've got a lot of um, ongoing evolution with with molecular pathology, and, and that's that's probably the future. But I don't think there will ever not be uh, someone um, who's who has the the role as a pathologist to make decisions about the tissue because you can't you can't do molecular testing on on every piece of tissue. Decisions have to be made, and you, you need someone with with the training and experience to be able to make that decision so that things are handled judiciously. Yeah. If if you don't, for instance, if uh, some of these tissue samples can be fairly scant, and if you don't handle them correctly up front, they can be exhausted, and we won't be able to do all the testing that's required. So decisions have to be made in a stepwise fashion so that all the right testing now and in the future will be available. Absolutely. That is, it's just so fascinating to me. It's like a whole world that I didn't even know. I mean, I get that something has to happen to be able to give people the information needed, but the actual what and how, like it is a whole new world. Like this is amazing. People need to know (laughs) the behind the scenes, what goes on. And I like what you said too earlier. You had said that it's both an art form and science, like it's both together. And we were able to see that when you walked me through the lab too, and you were walking us through like step-by-step, well, this is how it goes. You did the fresh tissue and then how you went to the permanent stage. And then, and part of that when they were working on examining breast tissue that they're trying to look for a particular spot on, there was a real art to knowing that. That's right, and it takes a lot of experience and training. And so, breast is a, is a pretty sizable organ. It's it's a large piece of tissue, and you you're really looking for something that could be as small as two or three millimeters. Uh, and most breast cancers being less than a centimeter, unfortunately, some over a centimeter. But we're looking for roughly one centimeter or less and but a, a typical breast is going to be 20 30 even 40 centimeters across right. so and the, there's a great deal of normal tissue in there and being able to, to distinguish the normal from the abnormal can be more subtle than than you would think the person who's examining is going to be using their their feel their their eyes and their experience to to try to distinguish normal from abnormal so that we can sample the right tissues right and you put this into perspective because somebody might go well, why don't you just do it for all, the whole darn tissue and you put this into perspective when you told us about the pathologist that tried to do that on a prostate, which is much smaller. Uh, we, we look at uh, sections on the one or two micrometer thickness of what's on a slide is between one or two micrometers thick. A single millimeter of tissue can produce 10,000 slides. What I referred to earlier is that there's a professor who had attempted to do that with a prostate and had not yet finished but had produced over 80,000 slides from a single um, 80,000 slides and had not completed the project. Oh, my lanta, that's a lot of slides. That's a lot of tissue. And that's that's from a smaller organ. A right. prostate is about the size of a small apple. And so doing that on a breast is, is impractical. Uh, we, would, we would not be able to do that. So we have to, we have to take selected tissues. Right. But tumoral tissues and anything that we identify as tumor, all of it will go in, but there's a great deal in the, in the background of normal breast that's not going to add to the diagnosis. So right. we, we focus, we're, we're focusing our energy on the tumor tissues, but being able to find that in the first place is the challenge. Right, and things can help like if they've had a biopsy done and they inserted a clip, then that can definitely help you locate the area as well. That's exactly right, that's very helpful. That's something that the radiologist will do if, there, if there's something that is, is a suspicious mass they'll leave a, um, a clip that has a very particular shape that, gives, that can be seen on an x-ray, and that, that will help us locate the tumor. That's so fascinating. Is there anything else that you would like to add about pathology or this whole process? 
I would say that it's a great specialty, and I, I really hope that more younger doctors will consider it as a specialty. It's, it's one that is, um, there are fewer and fewer people from U.S. medical schools going into. It's, it's something we would like more young, talented, intelligent uh, physicians to consider as a specialty. Yeah. I'm going to end with my favorite question, and I ask everybody, what's one thing that you would like women who are diagnosed either today or tomorrow to walk away from this episode knowing? There's a large team of people who believe in what they're doing, who each and every one of them does their job and does it well to make the final diagnosis as accurate and as thorough as possible. It's truly a village of people that add to this medical care. Right. And I want to add this, that the amount of science and and technology that's going on behind the scenes that you may never know about, but it is just so cutting edge and spectacular what you're able to do. And not only is that fascinating, but it plays an integral role on that patient's treatment plan because what you're able to find out down here is what the information that gets translated to the provider tells the breast surgeon, tells the oncologists how to move forward with their treatment plan. That's exactly right. So all the decisions that are going to be made after surgery are going to are going to depend on those results. So whether whether or not I'm clearly able to say that the margins are negative, whether or not I'm able to clearly say that there's estrogen receptor present or not is going to affect the decisions that both the surgeon and the medical oncologist or the radio radiation oncologist are going to make. That is amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today. We are just super blessed to have had you take the time out of your busy day to share your expertise with us. So thank you. Thank you. After we finished recording, I asked Dr. Brooker why he does what he does. And he reminded me that every little bit helps. It helps to shine a light and to make things better and better for that next generation. And he said he, you know, he has a wife and daughters and he wants to do his part in making a difference. And as pathologists and the work that they do, he definitely is doing that. When Dr. Brooker gave me a tour of the lab, I was able to get walked through step-by-step what happens from surgery all the way through slides and diagnosis and looking at it underneath the microscope. And it was a really cool opportunity and I was so excited about it and I couldn't wait to share this episode that I wrote a a little blog post that's on our website. So if you go to togetherweweather.org and go to the blog section, look for the article, Pathologists are hidden heroes. And you'll see pictures and an explanation of what happens step by step through the whole process. It's pretty fascinating. And I was just super excited to have been able to learn more about that and to bring that information to you because the work that they do is critical and information definitely is empowering. I look forward to speaking with you all again next week. Until then, remember that together we weather this storm. You are never alone.